Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can find the show online at buildingthefutureshow.com or follow me on Twitter at Building Show. You can also find it on iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. I'm excited to announce that I'm now a brand ambassador for the Business Rock Summit in Manchester, England, April 21st and 22nd, where Steve Wozniak is headlining. More details at business-rocks.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Christian Hessler, founder and CEO of Live Insure. Christian, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I, I think what you guys are doing is, is really interesting, and it's kind of why I wanted you to be on the show. But I think kind of maybe before we get into Live Insure, let's talk about kind of where you grew up. Sure, sure. So I grew up on the uh, East Coast in Florida, uh, which is kind of a unique place to grow up uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s because obviously up the road is NASA. Uh, as well as Harris Corporation. So all of the part-time math and uh, elective teachers at my uh, junior high and high school and grade schools were all teaching us COBOL and Pascal and oh, wow. computer stuff in an early age. So we were banging on, uh, you know, Amigas and Commodores and stuff doing serious, well, at the time, serious programming even back in the uh, way early 80s. So we kind of got to jump, kind of like living in Austin to a degree, right? You got to jump on some of the tech that hadn't gone and infiltrated other parts of the country yet. So we were doing... Um, you know, basic programming and uh, uh, the language basic and, and, and going in and hacking all the Commodore video games uh, probably a few years ahead of our counterparts. That's awesome. So you basically were thrown into technology. You didn't really choose to be into it. You just were automatically introduced into it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my background was pretty, had, had a pretty good variety to it. Um, I, you know, uh, I studied all kinds of different subjects in college and in grad school even and technology was always sort of interwoven through there but there were a lot of arts and there were a lot of languages and different things that I'd always worked on but no matter what I was doing I was always brought back to uh, technology as sort of the latest uh, medium or modicum that you would you know express yourself in that format so uh, you know everything I'd ever done I ended up having hands-on even at the early days some form of computer you know that was the way to express or connect or create or do whatever you were doing. So it was a really magical time. I, I, I talk with a lot of friends of mine who are of the same age and say, you know, it was pretty magical that we got to sort of see that, uh, that uh, almost Gutenbergian kind of transition from 70s and 80s into the 90s and 2000s and sort of watch the before and the after, whereas a lot of guys around today were kind of born into it or gals were born into it. And we kind of saw that change. So we have maybe a bit better appreciation for it. Um, sure. then, then, and then you got the parents that are too old that don't get it at all. You know, so <laughs> so we kind of had that magical, you know, anyone that kind of saw Star Wars originally as a kid is kind of lucky because computers kind of happen at the same time. Sure. So was there like one moment where you were kind of like, this is for me and this is kind of the industry I want to be in or? Well, no, it was kind of the opposite. My first job out of, I, I did my undergraduate at Vanderbilt uh, in Nashville and my first job out of college was actually as a museum curator of okay. all things, a humanities curator working on lots of multimedia and gallery exhibits and cultural festivals and all kinds of things. And, and of course, I was banging away on the computer to sort of make a lot of this happen, creating kind of digital interactive stuff in the early, early days, uh, even early days of what you would consider a web page or even, you know, documents and things that were, were done with a lot of graphic design. And then I started working with more interactive galleries. And as I sort of figured out just by that first job, you know, no matter what I would do, I could tunnel any passion into a technological sort of uh, avenue of that. And so after that job, I left and and, and moved 
uh, around the country for different jobs working places like City Search, which is the first online city guide, okay. which was the job I had right after the uh, museum gig. And then I went into some more, more harder core kind of jobs like uh, IT officer for a medical facility. And then I was the IT officer for First American National Bank and then went on to work for places like Computer Associates and Sun Microsystems. And so it just kept going. And the more and more I kind of got more degrees and more certificates and more experience, I found that, uh, you know, it, that it was just as a creative experience uh, uh, or a generative experience than any other discipline. And yet it was the thing that you, you know, kind of struck while and taught. This was sort of the movement. So it really wasn't hard, but it wasn't something I necessarily pursued. It's just everywhere I went, that was the expertise you needed to go to the next level. And so it sort of naturally brought me there, which I think was why it was more effective than if I had perhaps sought it out. Sure. So then what did you take in post-secondary then? Yeah. So I have a, a graduate degree in computer science. I okay. also have a graduate in music and also uh, some in business. So all aspects that have led to more the entrepreneurial side of what I do now. But that came over, you know, 20 years, right, or 15 years or, you know, a pretty good stretch of time. So, you know, it was nothing where I went to school for eight years straight, came out and knew what I wanted to be. It was, you know, I came out and knew, uh, you know, that I wanted to do something you know, that wasn't uh, just sort of the rank and file. And then I also knew that it had to have some sort of technology into it. And it just evolved. It truly, I mean, truly the word evolve makes the most sense in my case. Sure. It certainly wasn't a, a plan. And when I ended up, you know, as a senior staff engineer at Sun Microsystems, I just thought to myself, what am I doing here? You know, like here I am, <laughs> tear up the resume, I'm done. I'm sitting there in, in Menlo Park and in, in the Bay Area, uh, you know, a, a kid from the East Coast going, what am I doing here in the middle of Silicon Valley at the hottest time? Well, at the time was the first bubble, so to speak. But, sure. you know, at the hottest time in the world, where it was like, this is it. Like, we're, we're done. We're here. And this is where I'll be for the rest of my life. And, um, you know, it was an amazing journey to get there. And the things that I learned and mostly the people that I met along the way are kind of the main reasons. But, yeah, I mean, I think the way that technology is so pervasive now in all of our lives and anything we do, just period. It's just anything and everything you will do from your toothbrush to your streaming video to your job to anything. Totally. Technology is everywhere. And I really consider myself lucky of having gone through that transition of an era where that became in that came into being. And I kind of use the analogy with friends I talk to. Uh, I say, look, you know, we don't all walk into our refrigerator or into our um, kitchen in the morning and open the refrigerator and go, oh, my gosh, it's still cold in there. Isn't that amazing? Like we marvel <laughs> at how that food stays exactly the same cool temperature all night, you know, without anyone having to think about it. Well, that level of, of natural, uh, uh, you know, experiences, I think, is what the current generation feels about technology now. But if you go back to someone who lived before refrigeration or television or television, telephone or what have you, you know, they'll be able to explain to you how much more miraculous that is sure. or what they learned before having that that made having that so much more special. Um, and so I think we live in an age now where we're kind of in, a, in the middle of a technological saturation that I think starts to make things, which is when we talk about security later, it's kind of related to it. We make things very uh, or we we kind of have a lot of assumptions about what's going on in technology. And then I think out of that will come the next leap you know, in, in what's sort of the next generation of what connectedness and technology can do for us. I think we're starting to see beginnings of this in the bio space and in the AI space. But, uh, you know, we're still dealing with what I call the same interface that we've had for 50 years, right? Sure. Anything we deal with technologically usually has some sort of manual IO or input and output and has some sort of latent or, or synchronous 
computation that's going on, right? You hit the buttons and you wait, and then it turns to the thing you want it to do. You hit a search, you get back the search. And all of that, I think, is still very rooted in sort of the pre-technological era. Um, I think, you know, another example is that we still have words for things that are related to their, to their more uh, um, skeuomorphic or, or uh, counterparts, like we still call things stores or emails or, you know, <laughs> sure. things like that. And, and when things start to take on their own vernacular that doesn't have a root in the pre-technological era, I think that's when we really know the boat's kind of left the dock. So I just I marvel at seeing that transition because I think it has as much of a psychological or sociological impact to it than it does a technological one. I think we're coming to grips with some of that now with social media, right? I think social media has moved uh, exponentially beyond where we were socially as a society, which is a great thing in a sure. lot of cases, but it's certainly something to be reckoned with because we're almost like a child with toys. We don't know, you know, how they work, but they yeah, work, totally. you know, and so we're smacking them to make them blink and we don't know why they're blinking, but it's a lot of fun, you know? <laughs> so the idea is that it, we, we have to kind of catch up with some of that to get to that level where we can now make it do even more amazing things in the next, the next era. So, um, you know, I guess technologically we're, uh, we're kind of in that transition period, but I consider myself just having been a, a child of that, uh, you know, that late 20th century transition. No, it's interesting too, because like just even remembering when there wasn't the internet or a cell phone, like there, there's a lot of people now that they don't, they've always had the internet, they've always had a cell phone, right? It's even as simple as that, right? Where I remember using the computer pre-internet. Oh yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, I mean, I mean, we dialed up a phone line that the parents would get upset about and and make you hang up, or they they'd pick it up and start talking or dialing, which mm -hmm. would mess the modem line up, and you'd lose the game. It's like, Dad, get off the phone, <laughs> you know. And you know they did, 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 and it would stop, and you'd like completely lose everything you were bringing, you know, that that two K you were bringing down for fifteen minutes, like or whatever. And, and, and you know exactly. But I, I the the example I like to use is when I explain <clears throat> to folks that are you know maybe you know really really younger folks that are the kids that are maybe under twenty or you know. Uh, under under you know in their, in their teenage years and i tell them how many movies they go see now would be completely impossible totally when we saw movies or when you when you didn't ha like if a cell phone had been in this movie there's no plot anymore cuz like it's over in 10 seconds we'll just call him and it's done right yeah. or the internet or that i could google that and so many great plots in history are ruined by the immediacy of technology totally so now we have to come up with new plots that twist on that and make use of that but all the human aspects of like anticipation and, and, and unknowing and fear and, and, you know, chance, what's going to happen. Like when you erase all that, it's kind of known or you could just hit a button and make it happen. It, it sort of makes the plot seem a little phonier. You know, um, I mean, what, what, there was a movie on the other day where I, meant, I made the same thing going, if this guy had a cell phone, this movie's over in three minutes. <laughs> you know, so where's the real drama there? Um, so anyway, it's that kind of stuff, too, where if you hadn't grown up, like you just mentioned, living in the technology, so many of those subtleties are lost. Totally. Uh, because you just assume it's, you know, anything, anywhere, anytime, anyway, just hit a button. No, you're 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 totally right. It's it's really fascinating. So I'm curious then maybe let's get into kind of what is Live Insure? Yeah, absolutely. So Live Insure is the culmination of a really long uh, period of research and development that I have uh, been doing with several uh, people uh, in various formats over the years. Uh, that all sort of pushed the, the, the understanding a little bit further down the road uh, th that resulted in this idea that security online or your identity and your authenticity online 
is a pretty sort of sacred concept. And it has been utterly commoditized. And it has been treated like, um, I mean, again, the example I use is it's like medicine, right? Whenever someone brings up security online or on a mobile situation or a website or DRM, even go back to the Napster days, it's always spoken about as this bad thing that you have to do. We don't want you to have to do it, but you will do it. You won't like doing it. And we only do it when something really bad happens. Totally. Which has always fascinated me. Yeah. And you're guilty before proven innocent. Exactly. Like you show up to a website going, who are you? I mean, come on, who? It's like, no, it's me. I mean, what did I do? You know, so we're all guilty every time we hit submit before we do whatever, even though there's only like a single digit percentage hackers out there who really are the, you know, the bad guy. I mean, it's a matter if they pulled everyone over on the highway yeah. to check their speedometer when it's like, wait a minute, only he was speeding. Totally. So, so it, the problem, obviously, there's mechanical reasons why security and issues exist and, and the hackers stay one step ahead because there's been an unfortunate poor job of designing the internet from day one because it wasn't designed for security. You know, sure. internet, the internet was designed, if people know the sort of underpinnings of how it works, it was a very, very sort of trustworthy kind of concept, which is, hey, here's all these packets coming down this, this pipe. If some of them are for you, please take them and then push the rest along, you know, to someone else. It was, it was like a, it was like a, a genial mailman just walking <laughs> down the internet, just tossing envelopes in the right boxes. And, it, and so all the security that kind of um, swarmed around the endpoints of that, uh, you know, like firewalls and virus protection, all that, could do nothing for the innards, right? They just sure. could. I mean, it just is this wide open thing, which is where we're getting all the NSA conversations and everything else, because that whole middle ground is open for whoever owns the middle ground to sort of do with what they will, because there really is no um, security. I mean, I'm a big fan of the MIT Clean Slate project, which you know was popular a while back. Where it's like, let's just start over with the internet. You know, <laughs> let's just totally. pull the yeah, plug yeah, yeah. and start over because this is built wrong, and all we're doing is bolting on the ends of it, and it's just going to topple under its own weight. And I think net neutrality and a lot of the things that are topics now are all offshoots of not having done that when it was young enough, where no one would have cared that we rebooted the patient, so to speak. Now it's too late. I think it's too late. Yeah, because um, I think. I read like Google was even trying to rebuild their own kind of internet, yes. right? And you just yeah. switch to it. But I don't think it ever went anywhere. And you're right. I think too many people use it and it's too mainstream and too modern that I don't know how you'd ever switch. Yeah, no, exactly. And the whole idea uh, behind, again, getting back to Livinger, the whole reason why we designed this was that we realized that the problem with security, and it's originally started as a digital rights management product. The whole idea and the real original concept was a way to authenticate the context of a user as they experience content, no matter where they experience it, how, when, or why, because the rights holder of content, like music or movies or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, is you. You made an agreement with the artist, I'm licensing this. And that's literally how it's written in the laws. It doesn't say you meet agreement with Microsoft. Now, Microsoft threw their EULA in front of it, or Apple, or whoever, or, right. or Real Player, or, or Spotify, threw their EULA in front and says, oh, we're in this too. But in reality, the rights holder is the artist and you're the consumer. And if you've made an agreement to sort of license and enjoy their technology or their, their content, then you should be able to enjoy that anywhere, anyway. I mean, it's not your fault that today it's this format, tomorrow it's that format. Right. Well, when you have the physical world of like moving from 8-track to cassette to CD and all that, obviously you can't, you can't control that because physically it's a new physical distribution mechanism. But in the digital world, those lines kind of erase. And so we originally were looking at it as going, well, how can the rights follow the rights holder no matter what context they're in and stop being a very naive, serialized or sequential kind of if then, 
yes or no questions about what particular platform they're on at the moment or what particular website they're at, that those are really naive, simplistic uh, uh, things that belie the sophistication of the rest of the platform that we're still kind of doing this like, well, let me see your ticket. And here's your, you know, it, it, it was a, a very bad mismatch. DRM was just a bad uh, period on the Internet. Sure. Um, yeah, that totally created some good things on the other end, but but was a really it gave everyone this idea that security and, and, and technology and rights management was just this bad negative thing, which I don't think the Internet's ever recovered from. I mean, I think the impact of Napster is certainly become more, uh, uh, you know, if you take a sociological approach, we struggle still today at monetizing the Internet mm -hmm, totally. in a number of ways. And I think that era is where it's kind of like the Nixon Watergate, right? No one trusts government anymore. I think that Napster era is where everyone got burned going, I don't think we can try and charge for the internet. I just don't think it's ever going to work. And it really has only ever worked in the, in, in, the, in the wings, in the corner cases. The mainstream players can only basically run ads because everyone's, I mean, YouTube just the other day, YouTube Music Channel and YouTube yeah. Red, they're going to try again to monetize sure, where totally right. the internet is used to getting for free. So, and here's why, because YouTube didn't make the content, right? Yep. And I have friends over there, right? So I know I'm a love them. They're great. But I, I, Steve Jobs didn't make the content. Mm -hmm. You know, the artist did. And what happens when we broke that relationship between the fan and the artist or the newspaper and its reader or the movie production studio and the ticket holder, that's when things went south. Technology mm -hmm. should have been an enabler. And what technology ended up being was sort of the worst middleman you could think of totally. in terms of how it happened. I mean, it made great things happen technologically. Absolutely. But it it destroyed the value creation that was part of that relationship by which all the, the value was based on. So what we did with, with the original days of looking at this was to try to figure out a way to make a, a user understandable in any context so that we could erase those lines, go back to almost, you know, tabla rasa and just say, look, this is, you know, a guy and or a gal who made a deal with this artist or with this movie or with this article and is like, wherever it goes, it should know you, it should know me, and I can meet you anywhere, I meet you on any digital highway. Sure. Um, that's well, even just switching started. platforms, right? Yeah, Between like anything. Android, switching iOS, right? I buy like this here and now it's not available on my new phone because I switch platforms. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Or if I've made a relationship with a particular kind of content and then later I find that content in another format, I've already am a rights holder of that other format. And so maybe that other extra content that's now paired with it is at a discount for me, which would encourage me to buy it, right? We do this all the time in any other marketing thing. Like if I've already bought the one thing, I can get the upgrade for less. And that builds loyalty naturally and natively and based on value, not just based on advertising and, and kind of, you know, bait and switch and that kind of thing. So anyway, we weren't trying to solve that whole, boil that whole ocean. We were just trying to make sure that how could we sort of recognize things in terms of identity and authenticity based on context rather than on credentials. Right. And then that evolved, as DRM fell out of fashion, that evolved quickly into this concept of, well, how do we actually just purely identify and authenticate people like this? Forget about the reasons that they want to do that. So we kind of ditched media and saying, look, we're, we have partners that'll do that. We're not trying to solve that end of it anymore we're really boiling a fundamental problem about how do I know that I can trust you in in multiple contexts and what is that trust based on and how is that trust mutual rather than lopsided like it is with traditional security. Sure. In traditional security, the site holds the username, the password, the tokens, the credentials, they're tracking your IP, they gave you the login, and you're just up there trying to present yourself, you know, that this is me, and a number of sort of prescribed, pre-baked ways for which the user who's doing the presenting has no skin in that game at all. And yet that's the environment that has 
created the worst hacks of history. Sure. Why, and we say why, and the reason why is because we have decided that the cloud had all the power and the crowd had none of the power. But as anyone knows from reading Sun Tzu or any military movie they've watched knows from Star Wars again, not to be topical, <laughs> the thousands of little ships flying around takes down the giant ship in the middle, right? Oh, I mean, sure. George Lucas put it on the screen for us 30 years ago. Why is the internet, and, and Facebook's figured that out, right? Mm -hmm, Amazon's totally. figured that out. eBay's figured that out. You know who hasn't figured this out? The security industry. Yep. They're still trying to be the Death Star. Totally. With security. Okay. So what we want to be is the rebels. We're like, let's take that power okay. away from the cloud and let's give it back to the crowd. Not because we're trying to create this topsy-turvy chaotic revolution. No one knows who anyone is. But that that long tail, vote up, vote down, the crowd spits out the anomalies, the system heals itself kind of swarm approach or crowdsourced approach that fixes that has fixed or has enabled so many other things to be incredibly elegant online and on mobile can be applied to security sure. and the difference for us was that we wanted to give the end user some skin in the game we wanted them to have something when they authenticated that made them unique that only they knew that they didn't actually share with anyone else in the process because the other sort of cross-cutting principle to this um, was that in, the, in a military sense, for example, you never take any piece of information that you haven't been able to triangulate as being true. Right. right? There's, you can never trust anything that's a single source provider. Well, sure. that's all two-factor, multi-factor, regular security is all based on. It's ridiculous. And worse, the one source they're trusting is the one that's unfortunately the one that's going to make the decision at the totally. same time. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's like saying the keys under the mat, under the door, in front of the door, under the mat, but only <laughs> lift it up and get it if you're supposed to be personally supposed to do that. It's nonsense. <laughs> it's very it's all self-reporting. So what we wanted to do was kind of do a simple thing. One is to turn what was traditionally a shared secret 50-50 kind of puzzle, like regular PKI or, or encryption or public-private key, as it were, and we wanted to take that 50-50 puzzle and turn it into a triangle. Why? Well, because PKI and modern encryption and modern SSL are going to collapse the night that factoring primes is as easy as factoring exponents. Sure. Right? We know that. That's how, that's how SSL works. The minute that, that quantum computing can no longer play the hiding game of it takes me longer to compute this than it does you in real time, and therefore I just don't know how many ways to get to the answer seven, that's when modern encryption is over like instantly. Totally. So so if we don't move into a realm where we start putting the human element, the intent or choice-based element, what I say is move away from involuntary security to voluntary security, and that we distribute that in a way that there is no single algorithm, there is no single database lookup authority, and there is no single perspective taken on the truth triangle, as it were, that's when no matter when the depth bit depth gets bigger or smaller and the hackers get bigger or smaller is when they're never going to be able to catch their own tail. That's sure. kind of what has to happen. So we designed a solution that basically took that power from the cloud, distributed around the crowd. Number two is we turned it into a triangle instead of a shared secret puzzle, and we built that puzzle off of what we call contextual elements as opposed to credential elements. And what we mean by that is some things are stored, some things are dynamic, some things are interpreted, and some things are presented. And the idea is that we're, we all do this as humans every day. For example, when you walk down the street into an alley in a certain neighborhood, you're making a thousand assessments totally. about that environment to know whether you go further, go into that restaurant, work on the left side of the street, walk on the right side of the street, laugh openly as you're walking with your friends, or stay quiet with your head down. You will make a decision 
based on lots of inputs, some of which you're bringing to the party, some of which you're absorbing in real time, and some of which you're contributing. Like, for example, you might cross the street, and if people cross with you, well, then you get more nervous, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, who are following you or something like that, you think are following you. So we wanted to apply those same human principles to security, which says, look, everybody's bringing something to the party, but if we break that into a three-thirds triangle, and if we allow the user to participate in their own security privately and interactively, not just biometrics and stored tokens and certificates, but actually inter interact, um, then we can actually make a, make a much stronger and much more robust and, and much more impervious uh, uh, way of authenticating the context of that user, which is really all we're trying to solve. Because the third problem with most security that we wanted to solve, and, and the way we do it with LiveInsure and with Foreshore is we don't actually seed anything anywhere, is that every single hack that happens online is never someone getting hacked with the wrong credential. Right. That's the irony. It's always the right credential. It is the right. It's <laughs> yeah. your real credit card number. It's your real password. It's your real iCloud account for the Hollywood starlets or whoever got their picture stolen. Like all of these things, it's never someone brute forced the wrong factor, right? Right, right. It's they got the right factor and they got to use it in the wrong context. Sure. That's why security doesn't work when all of the factors and all of the context is designated by the single authority. Whether that's a vendor and their mate or whoever, you know, or, or their customer all in the back end or whatever it is, you can't hide all that behind the firewall and then not be able to blame yourself when you make your own wrong decision. Fair enough. Yep. Okay. So that's what we wanted to do. So what that means is that the sites have to learn to give away a little bit of that control that they're potentially used to having. That means the user has to participate in a way that's a little bit more skin in the game, but not in a way that makes them an expert or have to be a you know a expert custodian of their own identity. Yep. It's it okay. And then we have to let the context self-describe as much as possible, but we can never do that over the same wire that the identity is flying. So that's why I say we triangulate it so that no two key value pairs, and I'm getting a little deep here, but no two key value pairs around live insurer for sure ever travel over the same wire together. Oh, interesting. If we go back to that military concept, if I'm ever sending the Q over the same channel as the A, then I can never separate their integrity. Whether sure. I'm using encryption or checksums or whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter. Right. And what normally happens is that the majority of hacks that happen are not the sort of James Bond sophisticated hacks you hear about. <laughs> like we hear about the Chinese, you know, you know, Chinese hacking us and 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 various things, you know, or whoever, you know, not to disparage them, but you know, whoever, whatever sort of rogue element of some organization is doing it. Trust me, they're not rolling and unrolling SSL packets and inserting packet sequence prediction in the garage outside of your startup. Okay, sure, sure. No, they're doing something so low tech to get that door backdoor access that it's ridiculous. And yet, that low tech solution, right credential and wrong context, fails every single time from Apple and Google and Facebook all the way down. Sure. Whoever, you know, they just bungle it. And the reason why. My theory is, and we've studied this for quite a long time and spoken around the world from Singapore to, I mean, everywhere. Oh, wow. Is that these companies just don't want to let go of the control. Yep, totally. Okay, and the vendors that they go with, and I'm holding up the finger quotes right now, <laughs> traditionally are the ones that share that theory with them. Sure. Well, I also is, think, though, that, that their users aren't demanding them um, to like loosen the, that control either, right? No, you're right. You're right. In in a traditional hub and spoke model, which is what the whole internet has been up until very very recently, um, there was no reason for that. But then you introduce some concepts like single sign on and federated identities. You started getting into the sort of 
next generation web where we're as much content creators as we are consumers. I mean, 50 billion pieces of content are shared peer to peer every day. Online. Oh, wow. Okay. That's more than the searches, payments, and Netflix streams combined. Sure. 90% of that content is done from user to user by reference, not by value. And what's interesting is that obviously all of these major sort of platforms are making their money and making their ad revenue and, and building up the popular of their platform based on us being the creators of the content, sharing with our own peers who we also brought to the platform. Hey, I'm friends with you. We trust each other. We use each, you know, we talk to each other over this platform. I mean, Facebook's not a dating site, right? These people knew each other ahead of time or found each other in other ways. I mean, some people find themselves on Facebook, but the main issue is that we're the, we're the ones who have the biggest vested interest in the sanctity, privacy, and authenticity of what's going on. And so you're right, up till now, no one's really demanded it because they didn't know, didn't realize that they are the source and they have more of a vested interest in the sanctity of Facebook being solid than Facebook does. Totally. But we don't, we, we hadn't been able to articulate that until we have had hack after hack mm -hmm. after hack that got more and more personal. And, and I just spoke at a conference a little while ago and the, the big example of this is that you know uh, medical records got hacked a little while ago? Yeah. Huge problem, right? Target hacked. Big credit card. Yeah. I mean, my credit card had to get reset, even though I wasn't hacked, because you know Chase did it for everybody. Sure. Oh, um, that's right? too bad. Right. But I NS get it. I get it. Well, NSA government, right? Hacked. Yeah. Okay? Medical records. Everyone's like, oh yeah, new story, new story. Ashley Madison. Oh, now it's real. Yeah. Totally. Like, all of a sudden, now <laughs> the number one topic is your own personal <laughs> privacy and identity online. So. When we want to sort of figure out which of those piano strings we're plucking in terms of society and internet and mobile and, and social, we walked all the way through what is driving 90% of all security conferences and technologies now. And the answer is the crowd didn't care. Yep. Credit card gets stolen. Give me another one. Exactly. Medical records get stolen. Who am I? Who cares? Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I'm on this medicine, whatever. Yep. Like that, ma that matters to 2% other people on the planet who may or may not give you insurance or some, or some nonsensical kind of, you know, theoretical reason. Totally. No, no. You start getting down to what we're sharing personally and socially online with each other 50 billion times a day. Now it gets real. Exactly. Totally. And so we have been betting on that fact all along with our technology. And that's why we released a peer to peer version. Okay. of our technology called Foreshore, right. which where LiveInsure is an API. It's for your app or your website to plug in and you can authenticate a user up to four factors of authentication from a single API just by tapping their device and it does it the same cool way I just described with the triangulation and everything's in real time and nothing's stored and context and all that great stuff. Which basically the user never has to know. They just know, hey, wait a minute, you know it's me and yet I didn't have to give away any creepy information to do that. Totally. But Foreshore was giving that power exactly into the hands of the crowd. It's an app for iOS and Android where you and I over any social network can tap our way to add our own security to anything we're sharing over Facebook, Twitter, over SMS, email. Instagram, it doesn't matter. And then from our mobile, have real-time control over who gets access to that over and above the interim plumbing's rules, and in real time, allow, deny, or change those rules based on whatever might happen. And so it's almost like a remote control for trusting who's on the other end of a digital connection over any social or messaging platform, and then controlling that content in real time all over and above these existing social networks without requiring any of their participation, any of their permission, or any of their visibility of what you're doing. Yeah, I think that that's really cool what you guys are doing. And that's kind of why I wanted to have you on the show is not only kind of talk about security, but kind of talk about how you guys are, are solving the problem. And then, um, you know, just kind of giving your 
your perspective on the whole thing because you're right. People are really starting to care now that it's getting personal with iCloud and Ashley Madison, and I'm sure there's others that are coming in oh, the future. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the funny thing about that is that everyone thinks that the hacks they read about that morning happened last night, like it was some kind of break-in, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And what people don't understand is that the hack they read about today happened seven months ago or whatever exactly. it is. And it's only when the data gets dumped into some public forum where identities are shopped or things leak or whatever is when people realize it. But that's what's so strange is because then the sort of outrage in the media happens and it's very short-lived, right? It's yep. it's. I mean, if you would put this on the spectrum of like, you know, terrorist attack, plane crash, Hollywood celebrity breakup, everyone got hacked, sports scores, you know, like there's a continuum of things where this has about two minutes of people's, you know, attention. But what they don't realize is this was already going on. It is going on now. And the next one where they're going to get hacked is happening at this moment. Sure. And so the outrage properly applied to the to the people who made a deal with the user saying look we're going to take care of your data you know we're going to we're going to make money off of you using our platform to things that add value to you but we have a responsibility to keep you safe and 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 secure and you have a responsibility and we have a responsibility to give you tools for you to be able to protect yourself as well that's you know that's why we have insurance we have insurance because other bad people are going to do bad things to us and we're going to have to have a way to sort of protect ourselves. We can't just go to the police station and go, uh, I need you to sue them now, right? Mm -hmm. That's why you have civil versus criminal, whatever. And 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 that's the problem is that the general user population has, even though they've embraced the interactivity and the use of social media and mobile devices and online payments and all this, they haven't really embraced their responsibility in that uh, equation yet, I think to the degree that that we just said a minute ago. Now, it's not their fault because they're also not being given any tools to do so. Exactly. And so that's the gap we're trying to fill. We're trying to fill the gap that says we want to take some of that power, not all of it, some of it away from the cloud and give it to the crowd. And we're exercising a peer-to-peer -peer way for users just to get used to that they can actually now do this for themselves. And then we obviously want to you know, have our technology embedded into the traditional you know, hub and spoke scenarios where users just should have the ability to say, look, when I'm not logged in, no one else can log in as me, period. Exactly. And I have the power of what that is and what that means. And I haven't, I don't have to share that with you. And the way that live insurance and force will work under the hood at the patented level is that we just have figured out a really cool mathematical way to do that where you don't have to share the details to understand or recognize the composite in context. Sure. And that's really as simple as it as it goes. The user never sees that. They just tap things and log in and go, and they don't know what's happening different under the hood, except for the fact that we're not going to be asking them all kinds of creepy questions. We're not going to be scraping their fingerprints. They don't have to be pulling things down onto their phone and storing them like certificates and tokens. And uh, and, and they're not going to be just, you know, being constantly barraged by out-of-band messages. You know, we, we try to eliminate the uncomfortable and, bad user experience side of security just as much as we're trying to get rid of the actual sort of stigma of security being a bad thing. This takes us back to our original point. We think security is this cool thing that you should want to have and wield just like you wield your social profile and make yourself the coolest looking person on the internet you can you can dream up. That we want security to kind of feel the same way. It's not this negative backdoor patent leather shoe thing you know, that you've got to be sold by some business and it's this terrible, like, thing that just d eliminates the profits of a company because they have to do all this horrible security stuff that makes their users click away. We think it's actually an embraceable tool that will make people do more online. Totally. And certainly more with each other, which is really where the future of the Internet is. The future of the Internet is not Facebook and Google. No. The future of the Internet is you and I. Yep. No, you're totally right. 
creating and consuming as much between ourselves and peer-to-peer -peer paying for it and peer-to-peer -peer marketing it and our friends to market it and telling each other about what you're doing and I'm telling my friend what he's doing, that is how this thing is exponential for the next generations. And if that trust framework, that trust matrix isn't buildable at the crowd level, there has not proven to be government or private a single entity that has it together yet. And you would think Facebook or Google would be the ones, right? They've got the most data, they've got the most plumbing, the most money, maybe even Apple, throw them in there. These people should have solved this like it's breathing oxygen. But but do you think why they haven't solved it is because they haven't really been told they need to solve it? I think one aspect of it is is that. But I think the other aspect of it is that there uh, is a territorial marking of each major and and, I, and again I have friends at every one of these companies so this is, this is not like you know a, a, a disparagement against any one of them sure. they all make great platforms but they all have shareholders to be responsible for that says we're gonna collect our data we're gonna wall our garden mm -hmm. and we're gonna make sure people don't go there they go here right right you know the Twitter Facebook kind of battle or the Instagram or, or you know even the snapchat versus you know you could pick your battle lines and go look it's about driving more views and users one way or the other in order to generate revenue that's it so it's an antithetical uh, 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 philosophy or, or, or a, a, a counterproductive kind of strategy if your strategy is to protect the crowd with a big C. Right. Now, I'm not saying government has to step in. I'm not saying that it should be treated like a utility. I'm saying we should treat it like all completely permanent revolutions happen, which is when the crowd stands up and says, this is the way we're going to do it now. And the cloud goes, well, if we want to play, we go along. And the government last because they're the least usually catch up going yeah I guess we're coming along too <laughs> right that's usually how these things happen whether it's democratically whether it's socially right you can implement certain things but at some point when the crowd says I vote with my dollar or I vote with my time and attention that that moves all the rest of the mountains and so we believe that that we have a unique opportunity right now where the internet and the industry is listening to your point earlier, if they aren't, you know, weren't motivated to do so. Number two is I think we have a very, very educated population now that wasn't as educated in this space 18 months ago. Totally. And it's that short. It's that short a time. And now everyone has this mobile tool in their hand that, again, 36 months was not as pervasive ago as is, is completely, you know, uh, uh, ubiquitous as it is now. Um, and are used to using it for all these other things that they've gotten value from and they know where the cracks are and they know where the gaps are and they know what makes them feel uncomfortable and they can apply their will in this space I think more so than we could have ever done up until recently and so I think that's why our timing is right with our technology to go look there are and we're not the only way there's other ways where we invite lots of ways but the idea is that let's let's have the crowd do what they're doing in social media now around trending and around knowledge and around sharing and around popularity and around connecting and social causes like we're doing this in every other realm but protecting ourselves yeah it's no. so it, it looks easy on 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 the face but you again you've got organizations that aren't being evil or bad they're just not motivated like you said they're not motivated to make a change because they're going to have to live with some change there and that changes we might have a phone that when you pick up that phone and dial 12, nine digits, it rings the other phone. Mm -hmm. In between what happens and how I can control that and, and whether they're on the same make and model phone as me or blah, 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 shouldn't matter. No, totally. I totally so agree. That's, that's kind of how we see it. So we think security can follow that same route. And we believe, you know, that, that, that having tools that allow the user to pick like a geofence to what, they, for example, let's say that I want to share 
uh, something with you on a social media account and you and, and I want to say, look, I want to make sure you're within a certain geofence and there's a password to see it or uh, you have to pay me to see it or uh, you've got to be near your uh, wearable or something, you know, so that I know it's really you. I don't want someone else picking up the phone, seeing it when you're not around. Right. Sure. And I want to have control of it because because I'm the one sharing it with you. Remember, your responsibility happens the minute it hits your inbox or, or your post forum or whatever. But as me, the sender, uh, it's my content. I'm broadcasting and I'm sharing it. So let's say you get that content and you see it and you're authorized, but then let's say you forward it to someone I didn't want you to see it to. Mm -hmm. Okay, totally. Outside of my, uh, outside of all within Facebook's rules, we're all friends. So right, so there's a granularity there that I can't control once I've lost control that way. Well, let's say that gets forwarded from a Facebook post to a Twitter message, which mm -hmm. then goes to an SMS that finally someone puts in an email. With our technology, those rules that you as the original sender set follow that. And when you in real time adjust or rescind access to it, they all just disappear wherever they were found or copied. Which is really so, cool. Yeah. That's kind of how it works. So you have the power essentially to control what you share and verify and authenticate who you think you're sharing it with. But the fundamental question is how do you really know who – like, you know, how do we know who we are on the other side of this digital connection, right? We mm – -hmm. We kind of trust each other. Why? Because we're ascertaining clues. You knew my name. We knew the topic. I got the email. There was enough webbing there where we, you know, I recognize your voice. You know, like we know it's us because as humans, we can make a whole bunch of, what did I say, contextual decisions that go, I'm going to just run into this trust thing because it's cool. It's you. But in a digital mediated sense, when we don't own the platform and we're, and let's, let's be honest, 95% of the users are novice users on the internet. They're not experts. You know, they're just using it like you drive the car. You don't know how the pistons work, but I know when I turn the wheel, it turns. Sure. You know, so so most people are not experts and shouldn't be experts. Um, but they have no idea who is on the other end of that digital connection. When I send an email, a tweet, or a message, when I post something on Facebook or I host something on Dropbox, I am taking the clouds 100% word for it that they've done their job to make sure the person on the other side, according to the rules I've set with them, are who they say they are and have access to my content. And you know what happens if they get it wrong? Absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. I, I have I have I have no skin in that game. It's oops, sorry. Yep. Nothing. Nothing happens. So, for every piece of content, of course, our technology is not appropriate, right? Because some things you just want to share wild and free out there. Fair. And, you know, yep. Right. Yep. But there are certain things you know that you want to have more control of, and that's when our technology comes. Uh, you know, when the foreshore technology comes into play. The way we kind of say it is, when you need to be sure, you use foreshore. You know, when you were when you want to be sure of what you share. You know, use for sure, and that's that's it. And we all instinctively know what those things are. You know, those last four digits of the credit card, that should be redacted email, that hey, you know, here's a location I want to pick up my kids after school. All of these sort of seemingly harmless things, we could very easily with just a tap add some control over, and not perhaps make it impossible to be hacked, but significantly reduce the social end of hacking, where things are usually, uh, you know, more more commonly. Um, breached you know it's not again not someone unrolling ssl it's someone guessing your password or it's someone who grabbed the phone when you're in the restroom or it's someone who looked over your shoulder and can add a web client to your email client and is watching everything you know the real stuff that happens unfortunately on the internet well for sure lets you just put a dagger right into that yeah no and, and that's awesome so do you want to maybe mention where people can find those online and i'll post those in the show notes as well Absolutely. So if you go, if you're a developer and you want to add our sort of simple multi-factor, one API, four-factor technology to your website or your app or your cloud offering, um, you just go to liveinsure.com, L-I-V-E-E-N-S-U-R-E. 
Uh, and there's plenty of videos there, and you can click and download the API and go, and go right off to the races. And then if you're an end user who wants to secure anything you share over any social messaging or storing network, just peer-to-peer, -peer, go to any either go to foreshore.com, F-O-U-R-S-U-R-E.com, uh, or look up those words in either the iOS or the Android app store, pull it down from your app, and it's just as simple. And, and the way that Foreshore works, just to give people a two-second tutorial, sure. it works on your clipboard. So you don't okay. have to be – all you got to do is open the app with anything in your clipboard that you were about to paste and share in an email, in an SMS, in a Facebook post, wherever. And then you tap the icon for how you want to secure it, a geofence, a password, a wearable or whatever. And then you just hit the you know lock button and it turns color. And then you paste back out of your clipboard right where it was what you were going to share. Now it's the secured version. So it's really, really simple. And we work in memory with what's in your clipboard. So if you're going from one app to another app or from a browser to an email, it doesn't matter to us. You don't have to keep up with that. You don't have to keep lists of histories or bookmarks or anything like that. Whatever is in your memory will switch out with how you want to wrap and secure it and then let you paste it right back out from that long press. Um, with no friction anytime you want and then you'll get a notification and when someone tried to open it and you can do all kinds of cool things so um, it's really cool and it's a free app so just go to foreshore.com or look up foreshore spelled f-o-u-r-s-u-r-e in the app stores and uh, and start taking control of your digital life v very cool so maybe this is maybe a little bit of a controversial question sure. it, say i you know i don't I, I get like if i don't post things that on say like icloud or you know, I'm not on Ashley Madison or any of those kind of sites that could get you in trouble out, you know, in your personal life. Like, why should I really care about security? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, so one of the biggest um, misnomers about security is that it's only about proving what you did do. Okay, interesting. Right? Yeah. But the real point of the real and, and, and that has been the same security issue that has existed since you know the the, the uh, since uh, uh, you know the earliest uh, civilizations in Mesopotamia or whatever right they they would have wax seals on documents that 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 people would run twenty miles across the desert and they would you know break the seal and it was the king's you know the, you know non repudiation right this this is this is you know proving that this is real genuine and, and so on and so forth in wars they did this in secret ciphers and all this but the real problem in the digital realm isn't proving what you did do it's being able to disprove what you didn't do yeah fair because your identity is a purely digital construct online. It has actually no physical, the physical relationship is actually the most artificial part of it. The way that we tie our humanness to our digitalness is unfortunately the thinnest thread in the tapestry. It's the most artificial and unusual imprinting because there isn't anything about that digital connection that connects us to it physically. Sure. But within a digital situation, things that connect digital things to other digital things are ironclad associations because they're they're born out of that. For example, your IP address or your username or your email address, you know, fingerprints and footprints that you leave digitally around um, are very hard to deny because there is no other way for you to be able to um, say that wasn't you. So it's completely flipped the model. It's not like guilty until proven It's like in, in, or innocent until proven guilty. It's guilty until proven innocent, which is why, again, back to what we said earlier, that security has been sold as this negative thing, mm -hmm. this almost punishment, this almost uh, 
you know, red letter that you have to wear. And the idea, you know, like scarlet letter, the, the idea with Foreshore is about giving you some humanness back totally. into that exchange, which and non-biometric, although you can use biometrics, we have APIs to do that if sites want to do that, but we like to refer to it as voluntary versus involuntary biometrics. These aren't the things you scrape, these are the things you intend which is like salting a fingerprint with the way you use your fingerprint that someone else who just laid a copy of that fingerprint wouldn't be able to reproduce because it's missing the intent part, right? right? You can't copy and paste what someone plans to do. You can only copy what they did do and repeat it like keystrokes or anything like that. So the idea with our technology is to give, and we're just beginning this, so there's more to come with, with Foreshore, we're giving users the ability to purposely instill into that digital identity, things they share, people they connect with, the ability to add that humanness that is universally, uniquely, and customized them that allows them to what we call assault the context or affect the context in a way that is not digitally reproducible in a way where a hacker would make you have to prove you didn't do it. Sure. So we want to change the balance of that. And so if the folks that aren't, you know, obviously surfing nefarious websites and doing illegal things, they're just normally using the Internet just as a normal regular user. They don't have to be concerned about being hacked and exposed for doing something bad. They have to be worried about the data they're putting out there harmlessly and, and, and with good intention can be triangulated and used to construct a digital path or a digital event that wasn't them. That's, or that's super important, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or be used to construct data that is able to find out other things about them, and we could get into a whole discussion, which we don't have time for, on how many, how few points of data are required to triangulate you as universally unique in the universe with anybody else. They did this study, for example, where a couple senators, um, in just what was publicly informa public information on the internet, these hackers were be able to find exactly where their children were being treated by a doctor and what conditions they had from three pieces of information on the internet, oh, publicly wow. available, right? So the power of triangulation, which is what the hackers are mining and tilling all day long, um, is really what the most powerful piece of this is. So again, it's not what you intended to do or you're trying to cover up. It's your normal goings and comings online that you have no skin in the game. You've got sure. no ability to control. And so Foreshore and LiveInsure aren't the ultimate panacea everywhere because we're not plugged in everywhere, but for the, at least for the things you share, uh, it gives you the ability to basically, um, you know, put a gap in there and say, look, I'm, I am I am still in control of what this is and, and what I share and what happens to it. And so it's the beginning of, t of stemming, uh, you know, that uh, that tide. We have a lot of friends, for example, that are um, in the Bitcoin space and the blockchain space. And we right. can obviously get into more into that. Those guys are all thinking in a very similar kind of format. You know, it's all about death by a thousand cuts. The crowd is bigger than, you know, the, the cloud is big, the hackers are bigger than the cloud, but the crowd is exponentially bigger than all of them. Sure. And so to me, that's where the solution space lies. Somewhere in that end of the spectrum is where I would invest, not investing more in the Death Star. Sure. No, totally. And I think another good example that I remember a few years ago was when people were checking into Foursquare that they weren't at home and then somebody set up that pleaserobme.com. It's basically saying like, yeah, here's a list of like, you basically telling Anybody that you're not at home, you're telling the entire world that you are not home right now. No, absolutely. Like, it, it's kind of like that's the example that's always kind of resonated with me and I how I've kind of explained kind of this whole thing and why people should care about security. It's kind of like you need to think before you post certain things online because like you just talked about, you know, if, if by a few pieces of data, especially that are publicly available online, people can find out where you know, my children are or, or something like that. That's really kind of scary. 
You'd be amazed. I mean, I'll, I'll take it even just real quickly, even deeper than that. Sure. There, uh, I mean, the hackers are very, very good. And they're not even doing this visually. Like the days of people sifting through your internet, like uh, you're sifting through your social profiles and you're not like the hackers doing this, like the movies from like the late 90s, early 2000s, where it was sort of, oh, look, it's a hacker movie. Sure. Th those days are gone. They have very sophisticated optical recognition software and string scanning software that is able to create these associations and these data mining capabilities that, you know, is almost on par with what Facebook and Google are doing even to get your searches right. Like it's sure. that powerful. Yep. So they're able to figure out from things that are on people's clothing in the background of pictures that you're in. Wow. And associate insane. those things with other data. For example, guy could be in a picture with him and his daughter and in the background is a guy with a soccer jersey on, you know, like let's say in Europe, right? That it shows a particular local club. Sure right? They'll recognize that logo. They'll be able to triangulate that logo with that local club's local borough, right? Or city. They'll be, I mean, we just keep going here. You see where this is going. Like yeah, it yeah, is yeah. not just, oh my God, I told people I was out of town. It was literally about being able to go to depths of data analysis that we inadvertently don't even know is just wafting off of everything we're sharing. Sure. You know, just it does and, and how people associate you, know, you bring up a list of someone and, and the real breach is not going to be what you did. You might have your Facebook situation completely locked down. Right. You may as an individual be the most vigilant person in the world, but your 642 friends are not exactly. And your posts and your pictures and your things that they trust are showing up in their thing. And then they're friends with a bunch of people trying to get, you know, a thousand Facebook likes from some overseas button where you hit it and I can get 10,000 likes. Well, then they can see their account and all of a sudden your stuff is everywhere. Exactly. Right. And so you have really got to understand that it is just like saying you went online and started telling everyone your ATM pin number. Mm -hmm. Would exactly. you feel comfortable doing that? Well, then the pictures you're sharing about, you know, the, the milk truck going by in the background in your front yard that tells the phone number of the exchange of exactly where your house is, right? Or mm -hmm. what city you're in. And, you, you know, just silly stuff like that is exactly what these guys are cluing in and triangulating on. And the Internet is a rich cache of all this information. It has nothing to do with you literally giving rank and serial number of certain things people would think on the nose are, you know, divulging information. It's all the passive information um, that we're able to uh, uh, to triangulate. And, and it just it can go on and on and on. And the topic could be discussed forever. The whole point is, would you rather have them in charge of that? Or would you rather have you at least have some sort of skin in that game? And that's our philosophy. No, I, I think that's that's actually like a perfect, perfect way to end this. And sadly, we are out of time. So I'm maybe just quickly, let's promote again kind of where people can fi find Live Insure and Forsure on, online. And maybe if you want to promote any other uh, social media links to find yourself or, or the company. Yeah, absolutely. So again, if they go to liveinsure.com, L-I-V-E-E-N-S-U-R-E, or foreshore.com, F-O-U-R-S-U-R-E, um, and both of those uh, handles at Facebook and Twitter and all the usual places, um, or just Google it, you'll find it, you'll come up uh, uh, with links to find us. Um, I think that's really the best way for people to uh, to get the technology. And the key thing about Foreshore is that it's between you and your friends. Right. Like none of this is going through us. None of this is going through Facebook or the website. When you and your friend get the app, it's like you've got a secret pipe between each other and you guys can share things and tap and secure. And I mean, one of the coolest parts is, for example, you can do behavior. And behavior is one of the factors you can choose, where when you're going to share something, you can tap the phone and you can do something with the phone, like a pattern or a gesture with your fingers or something, like a secret handshake between you and your friends, only you're holding your phone to do it. 
it's crazy cool stuff like that where the kids are going to say, look, this is how we share our secret little photos or our messages with each other that our parents can't read or, you know, whatever fun stuff it is. They can add their own humanness to it. Sure. That's not something that's shared in the plumbing in between because, again, it's all math. Like nowhere in Facebook is it say hold your fingers here and shake the phone or whatever. It doesn't exist. It's just math. So that's the beauty of it is that what we'd love to have the crowd do when they get our technology is just play with it and make it your own. Make it your own unique authenticity. And that's kind of all we could hope for. Perfect. Man, Christian, that this has been awesome. Thanks again for, for doing this. And uh, I look forward to keeping in touch. And uh, I think we should have you guys uh, maybe on the show again sometime in the new year just to kind of talk more about security and kind of why it's important and, you know, why people care. And, and maybe by that time, there'll be another incident that we can kind of talk about and cover, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> exactly. No, well, it's been a pleasure. I thank you for your time and, and your listener's time. And also, there are some exciting things we're actually working on uh, for the new year that are going to be uh, uh, pretty interesting. And they have to do with something that's related to security, but in a much bigger world. So, yeah, we'd love to come back and chat then. Perfect. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can visit past shows at buildingthefutureshow.com. If you're going to the Startup Expo on February 16th and 17th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and want to record an episode, please contact me. The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Check them out at electricmantra.com. Until next time, keep building the future.